0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, LRT or no LRT. At least now we know what it's going to cost. A UK grandmother has become the first person to be given the Pfizer vaccine for COVID-19. The UK does not produce or manufacture their vaccinations either. Just like Canada. So why are they not only ahead of Canada, but first in the world. We've heard a lot about long haulers in the struggle with COVID-19. They recover, but the symptoms last for a long time. Why? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. This Christmas,
1: we have to live a simpler celebration. I told my parents just to chill and be one with their own space. And play a video game.
2: Like,
0: what's the problem? It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson.
2: There
0: you go. Well? Huh? There you go. Uh, You know, we put out the call a long time ago. If uh, you're a Hamilton musician, uh, because we've been changing the song every day, and it's usually had something to do with the theme, which is the pandemic. That's the theme of the Scott Thompson Home Show. Today, it's pandemic. Anyway, so uh, then we started looking for. Yeah, that's about all it deserves, Will. Uh, they, uh, so then we decided we're gonna, like, start using local musicians. Wouldn't it be cool if we could get you local musicians and play them? So we started doing that last week. So people started sending in stuff, which is great. And I encourage you, don't take it to the station. Don't take it to the radio station, cause, uh, it's like Fort Knox there. So, uh, but if you could send us a YouTube link or uh, a website or whatever, and then we can access it, that'd be cool. So Hamilton musicians out there, we're looking for you to, uh, give us something to start the show with and, uh, we'd love to, uh, to give you a bit of a plug. All right. So lots of chat yesterday in regard to Hamilton's LRT during the Q and a of, uh, the premier's uh, news conference yesterday, he said he, he was talking about the auditor general's report. And in that report was a piece uh, in regard to Hamilton's LRT, here is what the premier had to say:
1: We've been talking about the Hamilton LRT for God knows from the day we got into the office, and uh, the the previous uh, Liberal government under Stephen Dalduca, the minister at the time, now now the leader, was misleading all of Ontario when he said, "No, no, it's not three point. Uh, I think it's three point six billion. It, you know it was only a billion. Well, now the Auditor General came out and confirmed. The numbers we have said, the only difference between us and the Liberals, as soon as we found out, we were transparent, compared to uh, Stephen Del Duca, they they wanted to hide it, and mislead the the people of Hamilton. I I love the people of Hamilton. I'm going to be transparent. One way or another, we're going to get the LRT built. We've committed a billion dollars. But how, how how can you trust Stephen Del Duca when he was totally dishonest and he knew about it the whole time? It wasn't the accurate figure. Now the truth has come out. And this is what I mean. The, the, the Auditor General's report, I, I, I love this sort of stuff because now I can dig deeper into it and uh, we'll have answers. Uh, let's bring in
0: Keenan Loomis, President and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. He is with us now. Keenan, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am well, Scott. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, can't complain. You know, what the heck, we're all in the same boat together. Uh, or in this yeah. in this case, the same LRT train. Um, right. Your thoughts on what came out from the Auditor General earlier on this week?
3: Well, if the Premier is uh, sick and tired of talking about Hamilton LRT, <laughs> he's only been doing it for a few years. I am more sick and tired than he is, yeah. uh, because uh, obviously we've been talking about this for a lot longer uh, here in this community. You know, we, we welcome the Auditor General's findings and the report, and I think that helps us, uh, in ensuring that everybody is working with, uh, accurate information. I think that we have to be careful here, um, in, uh, assuming that the costs of building this LRT have now ballooned, uh, from 1 billion to 5.5 billion. Um, you know, there's a, we're not uh, comparing apples to apples here. The original 1 billion that was, uh, pledged to uh, you know to build the project um, the where the initial upfront construction costs and that was uh, that was a long long time ago and it's obvious that uh, we've been dragging our feet and and uh, as a result that's had a huge impact in in the costs going forward but um, you know what we would uh, say is looking at the AG's report um, you know, it looks like the cost, the the one billion, if we can, if we compare apples to apples, has, has probably doubled, and um, and again, that's uh, that's just what happens when you when you drag your feet. And I think there's a lot more engineering that's been done as a result as well, in terms of understanding exactly what the conditions are beneath the uh, the railroad tracks. And and uh, obviously, we know it's a very historic corridor, and we'll need a lot of work. And so. As a result, uh, the costs have increased there as well.
0: Uh, We all know, going way back to, as you said, how long we've been talking about this now, uh, going back to the beginning, and this was a sticking point. The whole deal was it was free. It wasn't gonna, and we all know nothing's free, and we all know that whether it comes from the feds or the province, in the end, it's coming from our taxpayers' uh, coffers. But that was the big issue: was you know the only way we're gonna do this at Hamilton Council if it's not costing us a thing. And then it was like it's one billion dollars, and then Kathleen Wynne came in with the big check, and and the one billion dollars was there, and we were supposed to be off and running. But you know, continuing to question itself, Hamilton kept going back to the well, kept going back to the well, looking for. I'm not sure what, but, uh, you know, eventually what the concern always was, was this was going to cost a lot more than that one billion dollars. And, you know, I don't think it's just inflation that has ballooned the cost to where it is. So how does this change the discussion? Because, again, this all started and I don't even think anybody remembers this. This all started with the only way this is going to happen is if it doesn't cost Hamilton City Council a thing. So where are we now?
3: Yeah, well, where we are now is, uh, you know, we have a shovel-ready project that we've spent 10 years and over $160 million in planning. The province owns about $80 million of property in the city of Hamilton. Uh, we have a federal government that is looking to invest in transit in the GTHA, and uh we have a minister of infrastructure who is from Hamilton who really wants to see this project get done. And we also have Leuna, which is a, a, a major uh, player in this whole equation, wanting to do everything it can uh, to get this done as well. And so, you know, it's the cost of, of building our, our $3 billion and, and we can count on the province, uh, you know, in in. Um, them delivering on the the billion that they have promised, then I think that there's a way that we can continue to to get this done and, and get this built um and continue to to feed development into the city. I don't think that uh you know this requires us to to reevaluate um I think it's just again we're now we now know what the costs are and so let's get on and uh and and let's build it it's still going to be worth it it's still going to be the major backbone of a future transit system. Um, The other story that we saw in the spec this morning was that, you know, we're going to be growing as a city over the next 30 years uh, by almost half of our current population. So we're going to need something like this. And this is just the first step in a 25-year transit strategy that will allow us to accommodate that growth
0: so now that we have these numbers and and you know from a neutral body here that that does peg it at what it really is here um how does that change discussion can we now have a serious discussion without so much question because of lack of transparency and and i guess the question is here keenan does this bring the lrt closer i mean ford said he's going to put in his share does this bring it closer
3: well, I think it does. I think, you know, COVID as well has changed the equation. Um, again, the the federal government is willing to invest in shovel-ready projects as part of the uh, post-COVID right. stimulus. They've uh, earmarked $100 billion to do that over the next few years. Um, and they and the province are talking about many uh, transit projects in the GTHA as part of, a, I, I would hope, a larger omnibus uh, funding agreement of transit. And, you know, those thousands of jobs that would be created as a result, and then the development, of course, that are, that is unlocked along the way, you know, that, that's it's pretty, not 5.5 billion. And, and you know, a, a good part of that is the operations and maintenance agreement uh, and, uh, and those costs that the city was always prepared to bear. And those uh, costs haven't uh, escalated dramatically. Um, so I think it's still a sound project, and it's, I think it's still worth going forward. And, uh, you know, again, there are very few shovel-ready projects uh, around the country to to invest in uh, to be able to help spur the economy post-COVID. So uh, let's keep working on this and and see if uh, the conditions can all come together and, and get us going.
0: So when does this – and it appears that this has added a lot of clarity to – uh... to the discussion and and again it's unfortunate we didn't have this way back when because perhaps is perhaps it would have uh quelled a little bit of the discussion and in the debate but that being said when and how does this discussion get back on track i mean you heard the premier say the other day he's he's in so he's made that public uh we've certainly heard the fed say that they're looking as you mentioned for shovel ready uh uh projects that that can stimulate so what do we have to do to get this actually back on
3: track well, I think now that the uh, federal government has delivered its fall economic statement, uh, it's looking at uh, how to you know, lay out the, the $100 billion in funds that uh, it has promised for uh, infrastructure going forward. And I think so between now and, and when the budget is expected sometime in the fall, uh, in the spring, we will uh, be able to you know, get a lot more answers there. So if the province is in and we, we say the premier just doesn't change his uh, commitment to getting this project built, um, you know, Leuna is working really hard as well to be able to help close the gap. So it's just a matter of the feds coming together and then and then the feds in the province uh, coming together, um, you know, for an agreement. And uh, obviously there are two different uh, political parties, and I think that there are is some politics going on behind the scenes here. We we heard the premier mention uh, the leader of the Liberal Party, so if there's a way, I guess, to be able to implicate him in this, uh, they're willing to take that uh, to tarnish him. But uh, you know, and, and obviously, we and, and that really let's well. be
0: honest here that 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 mudslinging goes both ways. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think Del Duca called him a liar there about a week or two ago. So <laughs> yeah you know yeah, uh, like let, let, let let's be serious here you know i mean he, he and he, he was the man in charge as a transportation minister, when this was all going on, so I mean, come on, here, uh, enough of the BS, and let's get this thing rocking. Uh, so it's a, you know, it's it's certainly a news story that this auditor general report came out and revealed this, and it stirred the pot up a bit, uh, you know, and, and perhaps will, you know, energize each side of this debate. But that being said, cannot this not be used as a starting point, Keenan? Can this, and can this not, uh, you know, be something? That pushes this ball
3: forward. Yeah, absolutely. Again, we it, now we know the costs, and, and they're completely out there and, and transparent. And we know that, uh, as I said, uh, the province is is in for its billion. The premier, regardless of uh, what's been found by the AG, is still committed to getting this project done. And we know that the the feds are, are looking to invest in shovel-ready projects. So I, I think it's it's pretty easy. Um, of course, uh, we've said that, uh, for a long time, here. Yeah, really. um, yeah, right. <laughs> okay. but you know, it, it, it would really be nice that, uh, you know, if we, if we did build, build this long time ago when it was first promised and we had it in place right now, or, you know, even obviously, uh, you know, one of the, the biggest issues, uh, not just the cost, but the disruption to the lower city. Well. You know, if, if we were building it right now, there wouldn't be as much disruption because obviously there's not a whole lot of uh, traffic. So I wish that yeah. we had uh, done this a long time ago when, when the costs were lower, um, but uh, but here we are. And, you know, it's still uh, a good time. The, you know, the best time to do this was 10 years ago when it was first announced. The second best time is, is to do it now. I
0: hear you. Keenan Loomis with us, President and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. Keenan, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well.
3: Thanks,
0: Scott. You as well. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The big story today, obviously, the UK, where uh, a a nine-year-old woman was the first person in the UK to be first vaccinated with the COVID-19 uh vaccination this is the pfizer vaccination and uh, obviously a big story there and a big story uh, all over the world especially here in canada as we're wondering when we will be in the situation to offer a a max vaccination of some sort let's bring in redmond shannon europe correspondent for global news and is with us now redmond thank you for the time i hope you're doing well
4: yeah i'm pretty good how are you scott
0: I'm doing very well. This is certainly a story that is uh, making headlines all over the world. What's it like there in the UK? What's the buzz after this news?
4: I think there really is a buzz. I mean, people are, are just crying out for some good news after this year that we had uh, here in Canada, everywhere. And this is good news. It's undeniably good news. And uh, the first person in the world to get this vaccine outside of trials, of course, was Margaret Keenan, a 90-year-old grandmother. She uh, got it at bright and early, 6.30 local time this morning here in England at the Coventry Hospital in the Midlands. And uh, it was over in a flash, and she was said it was a great early birthday present for her. She will be 91 soon and uh, was quite the uh, perfect patient to to stand and sit in front of the cameras, a, a bank of cameras, and looking at it, the world's media looking at it, um uh, here in the uk as other countries canada the eu the u.s are expected to of course approve and roll out this vaccine too in in the coming days and weeks
0: so obviously we saw the the footage of this being uh the video footage of this being trucked in from belgium so uh if it's coming from belgium why is the uk the first to administer this
4: yeah, very good question and, and it's it's down to the uh, separate uh, process of approving it and uh, so the UK's uh, drug approval agency approved it first and there have been uh, some concerns raised in certain quarters that perhaps it was too quick um, but it is uh, by all accounts and uh, by every, every way we can see that it is an independent agency that goes through uh, due process and has been leading up to this. It hasn't just landed it wasn't just landed with this vaccine once it was ready it has been working toward this moment to get it done as quickly as possible for months now so being preparing itself knowing what it was to expect so that is is what we believe is the reason that they were just they were ready they knew what to expect and they were able to approve it based on the data they had very quickly and before uh, the European Union before the US and Canada before anywhere else. So that's why the UK is rolling it out first. Of course, politicians here in Britain, especially on the government side are, are, um, making the most of it. It's not a British produced vaccine. It is, of course, made by Pfizer and, uh, BioNTech, a German US, uh, company or collaboration. But it's the UK that's administering it first and, uh, especially is. um, The UK has had such a terrible time with COVID, 62,000 deaths, the worst in Europe, the worst death toll in Europe. It's certainly some good news that uh, everyone welcomes, not least Prime Minister Boris Johnson.
0: So what is the word in the EU, the fact that this was produced in Belgium, it was not produced in the UK, and then trucked out of Belgium and brought to the UK? So theoretically, um, uh, the UK gets a vaccine Uh, that they aren't manufacturing... Uh, before the originating country does. And that's very much the same scenario as Canada. We don't produce it yet. We, you know, apparently we're standing in line or there's a few, uh, doses coming in prior to Christmas, but it will be very much a gradual thing, uh, enough for three million shots, six million doses uh, between January and February. So how is that? What is the response from those in the UK and in the EU, the rest of the EU, that, uh, they're getting it first? Or do, do they, do they care simply because it's within a day or two? of the rest.
4: Well, I think there were certain politicians uh who like to go on Twitter doing so today in Europe, um, responding to Boris Johnson's um triumphant tweet uh early this morning when this first vaccination was administered saying, you know, this is made in the European Union, obviously very pointed given that post Brexit trade talks are still ongoing and on a knife edge as they head towards the deadline at the end of this year. That of course is another story, but it is in the background. And really it's a. Uh, it's it's a case of politics and money. Um, the bigger, richer countries are getting this first and are able to do this first because they have the health agencies able to approve it and are geared up to approve it first too. So, you know, as we in the West um, are are happy to see this happening now, spare a thought for the poorer countries, developing countries around the world, which are having to rely on the generosity of uh, dozens of countries, including Canada, part of the Gavi Alliance uh, vaccine alliance um, program, um, COVAX, that is a program that Canada has contributed to and many other countries have c- contributed to, to make sure that developing nations get this vaccine relatively quickly too. Now, inevitably, the big countries will get it first, but the hope is that it will be somewhat equitable around the world because there's no point in extinguishing this virus in Canada, in North America, in Europe, if it is still exists elsewhere. It's just going to come back. So, That's a big part of it, too. Um, It is worth noting that the COVAX program, two big uh, countries that haven't uh, signed up to contribute to that are Russia and the United States. But uh, apparently the Biden administration may be speaking to the Gavi Alliance about that. So it is a lot of politics and money. And ultimately, the big boys uh, um, often uh, get there first.
0: Because it appears, Redmond, that the U.K. is in a similar situation to Canada uh, is in the sense that uh, they don't produce it. So they have to rely on others to get it in, which is the reasoning many have said here. Politicians have said here that there will be a delay in actually getting any sort of max vaccination. So but obviously same scenario for the U.K., but they made it happen.
4: Yeah, they made it happen. They got the orders in first. Uh, The UK has, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of vaccine doses on order from various vaccines, uh, most of which, of course, aren't yet approved. Canada is the same. And, um, you know, hedging the bets, the governments in Canada and the UK and elsewhere are are ordering tens of millions of various vaccines and hoping that they put their bets in the right place. And, well, time will tell ultimately which ones have the best efficacy over time do they last 6 months do they last a few years do they last forever um we, you know the the trials show that they are safe but um how effective they really are in real world setting that's a different thing too but um you know the politicians have put their uh Put their bets uh, on certain vaccines, and and those being the major ones like Pfizer um, and AstraZeneca. And Oxford University have another one, which is looks like it should be approved soon. Of course, that uh, Oxford University here in the UK that is one that will be a big part of the solution here because that can be stored in a normal fridge between two and eight degrees. This Pfizer BioNTech vaccine has to be stored at minus seventy. And it can only be done in certain places. And again, that's only rich countries and big countries really have those facilities. And even then, they are rare to have refrigerators that go so cold. So it's only certain hospitals right now in the UK are administering it before they can have trucks go to care homes and so on. That's a similar situation in Canada. It's very logistically difficult. But this Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, if and when that gets approved here in Canada and elsewhere, that will be much easier to transport and much easier to administer. And uh, it, it, it's going to be about a number of vaccines around the world, not just one.
0: But this Pfizer, just to clarify, Redmond, this Pfizer va- uh, vaccine that they're administering now, that's not actually manufactured in the UK, is it?
4: No, no that's not, ma- not, not manufactured in the UK. And you're right, okay. it's come from Belgium. But, you know, the orders are placed by the UK government and it's a... Uh, Pfizer, and, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a company, and uh, you you order first, or you, you place the order, and it's under certain circumstances, and you you get it first if if that's the circumstances of the order. So that's basically how it's played out now.
0: So last uh, question, I got to run, Redmond. Uh, is is supply an issue? or getting enough for the UK or the rest of the European Union? Is that going to be an issue for you?
4: There are reports that there are difficulties with manufacturing uh, because it is a complex um, vaccine to manufacture that it's uh, not exactly as plentiful as they would like but of course every country wants it and uh, there are the UK has 800,000 doses in hand right now it says Canadian government as we you know this week says quarter of a million doses are what uh, Canada expects to get very soon um that's just the start that's going to be the older people in the population care home workers, healthcare workers, and get it first. But after that, it's going to be perhaps a bit of a logjam. The U.K. expects $4 million by the end of the month. That's a big part of the puzzle. But there's going to be many more factors that come into play as every country around the world competes to get this vaccine. That could be a difficult thing as we go towards the new year. Redmond Shannon has been
0: with us, Europe correspondent for Global News. Redmond, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well.
4: You too. Have a good one, Scott. Thanks.
0: Take care. It is uh, 1244. So Redmond Shannon uh, speaking to us uh, from the UK, uh, 4 million by the end of the month. they hope to have 4 million people vaccinated uh, there by the end of the month. And something also fascinating that uh, Redmond said is that uh, this vaccine is not manufactured in the UK. It is manufactured in Belgium. So uh, they trucked it out of Belgium and into the UK uh, first, which is a very similar situation to Canada's. We don't manufacture it here, we're buying it, and yet we seem to be having uh, issues, whereas obviously the UK in the exact same predicament as Canada is, and I'll find out more about this, I'll keep asking these questions, uh, who knows at this point, but basically in the same situation as Canada, in the sense that they don't manufacture it, yet they're the first to roll it out? Th- those are questions that need to be asked as we move forward with this. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy, uh, grad, uh, Ph.D. graduate, and as well, uh, Queen Elizabeth Scholar with McMaster University and on the line now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Nice,
2: Todd. Good to be with you again.
0: So great news in regard to this vaccination in the U.K. We all saw the pictures of uh, the woman getting uh, being the first uh, after trials to get the vaccination. Your thoughts on where we are?
2: Well, I think that's a great way to sort of project what the future would look like for Canadians. I mean, seeing the first patient in the UK get the vaccine, reviewing the evidence that's come out so far from the Pfizer vaccine is promising. The real question becomes is when do we, when will Canadians have access to that vaccine? We know we're getting a shipment from Pfizer. It still has to go through Health Canada regulation process for them to approve for mass distribution here in Canada. So until that happens, it's very difficult to project when exactly is the date that we will have access to that vaccine.
0: We are hearing that the FDA has moved one step closer today and will probably finalize by Thursday, and uh, therefore most thinking that Canada uh, will be uh, certainly on par or not uh, far behind uh, the United States in approving uh, this. Do you expect it to be approved by, say, the end of next week?
2: I'll be very surprised to hear that because I think that what what we're learning is that we still have to get the vaccine in canada and then it has to go through health canada's regulatory process so the real question that comes to surface is how long will that regulatory process be it could be like you know fast track and so we could see in a couple of weeks but i think it's going to take just a little bit of time so i suspect probably in the new year Uh, we will start thinking about how that will happen. And then there's going to come the question about distribution. Will it be under the governmental process uh, where the distribution of the vaccine will happen? Or will they delegate it to organizations like the Canadian Red Cross or other organizations to look at distribution levels?
0: Uh, as far as approval, from what I'm understanding, doctor, that they're pretty much uh, at the same place as everybody else is, that that everybody's been getting this information in stages at roughly the same time. So uh, w- uh, I'm surprised to hear you say that it might be till after the new year that this actually does get approved.
2: Well, from what we've heard today from the reports is that it still has to go through the regulatory process of health Canada. I mean, right. Christine Elliott has made the remarks on the update on the province COVID-19 distribution plans. And she said that you know we're getting the vaccine but then it doesn't mean that once canada gets it the point you're trying to make here is that just because we have the vaccine in stock doesn't mean it will be distributed right away so i'm just very careful with with trying to say that you know the vaccine will happen immediately i mean dr tam will provide an update on the rollout plan which will involve more details about how long will it be till it's approved for distribution so the, even the, the, the bottom line is that seeing the UK approve it and they have a very similar health system to ours is very promising. I'm not saying that there's going to be delays in the approval. I'm saying right. that the UK provides a very clear indication that most likely it will be a very fast track process. But we're December 8th right now, Scott. So, you know, by the time we get it, by the time the rollout plans happens, and we've seen in the past things in Canada take it just a little bit longer than other countries just by virtue of our healthcare system.
0: Uh, one, we were talking with our uh, our correspondent from Europe uh, pr- prior to talking to you. Obviously, lots of excitement there in the U.K., but uh, w- one thing we were chatting about, and I don't, I'm not sure if you can add any clarity to this or not, but Uh, the UK is not manufacturing this, uh, this vaccine. They're not producing the vaccine. Therefore, very much in the same situation, uh, that Canada is in the sense that we don't produce it or, or manufacture it either. Um, yet they're getting theirs, uh, from Belgium, uh, trucked into the UK and the first in the world to administer it after trials yet we're using the fact that we have not been able to manufacture or produce it as a reason for the lengthy timelines anything a- any anything to add to that
2: yeah sure i mean this is a classic example of international diplomacy and international relations it's about country to country level through Trade deals and economic deals and negotiations and, and you know, uh, uh, very heavy stimulus plans that happen between country level. So this is politics of pandemics for you. And it's playing out. Uh, and so which country got it first? How aggressive were they in their negotiations? How was Pfizer uh, willing to negotiate with certain countries over others? We will learn more and more and more about this as the time progresses. Uh, because we will see more of those stories emerge, which countries. I mean, I mean, it's also very telling that the United Kingdom, one of the richest countries in the world, was able to get it first. Now the conversation is going to become, what about the poorer countries in the world? Will they ever yeah. have access to this vaccine? And so this is what I'm saying, that, you know, this is a beautiful conversation and analysis into the, how politics can play a big factor in access to healthcare
0: uh so the uk talking about having four million uh injected by the end of the month what kind of impact will that have on the uk
2: well i mean the impact it will have on us first is that we will have this sort of test trial that we are witnessing live so we're looking now at what's going to happen we have to remember and remind everybody that this vaccine from pfizer is two doses 21 days apart so you take Mm -hmm. one dose you have to wait 21 days and then you take the second dose and only then do we see full effectiveness or efficacy, 95% efficacy of the vaccine? So what's going to happen in the UK is that if they continue to do this by April, the pandemic should be over for them. Uh, if they actually are successful in giving the vaccine to everybody uh, or a mass number of people to create herd immunity in the UK, then we suspect that by April they should be over with the pandemic. The same is applicable to us in Canada. So we will witness now, now that the UK is a bit ahead of us, We will be paying very close attention to anything that comes out of the UK. I think the whole world is now paying close attention to them with this first patient. And then it's going to be a matter of time for us to get it here in Canada and then for us to see the effect. The other things that we need to be thinking about carefully, Scott, is uh, how many people in Canada will actually get vaccinated. Early studies are showing 70% of people are willing to take the vaccine. Time will tell whether that is actually
0: accurate. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, health policy expert. Uh, Ahmad, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson show podcast on 900 CHML. A recent study by uh, Dr. Daryl Leon, a Hamilton based cardiologist shows people with a history of blood clots and certain ethnic heritage, heritages are more vulnerable to COVID-19 during this pandemic. To talk more about all of this and other things, COVID-19 related, let's bring in t- uh, Dr. Daryl Leon, director of the cardio oncology program at McMaster university and Hamilton health sciences and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
5: I am. Thanks very much for having me and hope you're doing well, too.
0: Yeah, we're trying. Your thoughts on the information coming out of the UK and the first person to get uh, inoculated against COVID-19. What's the, what's the buzz in your industry?
5: Look, I think this is terrific news. Uh, it's unprecedented the sort of pace uh, with which uh, the scientific community has moved to undertake these studies. Uh, This process of developing vaccines would normally take years, and this has been condensed into really months. And I think these are excellent and exciting developments and hopefully will uh, mark uh, almost an end to this pandemic. I think there are many other pieces of the puzzle that have to come together before we can call it an end. Uh, But it's uh, hopefully uh, the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak.
0: It certainly has been amazing, and I guess this is the one positive to come out of this pandemic, is how we've seen uh, health organizations all over the world work towards this common goal. That's, that is unprecedented, and will that set, set a new precedence for post-COVID-19?
5: Look, I think COVID-19 is going to change the world in so many ways. Uh, what's happened in the last 12 months or, or a little more uh, has never really happened uh, in, in modern times. I think that there will be some good to come out of all this. And one of the good things will be the sense uh, that we need to be able to work together and not just the scientific community, but public health agencies, governments, uh, people in communities to really control uh, major epidemics and pandemics like this. And there are going to be a lot of lessons. Uh COVID-19 may not be the last uh, pandemic we see in our lifetimes. These sorts of things could happen again, but hopefully the lessons we learned from this will give us better tools uh, for making sure that we can control any future outbreaks of similar infections.
0: On that note, what did your study reveal?
5: Um, so what we are actually undertaking, and this is still a work in progress, is uh, a large international study uh, looking at uh, who gets COVID, uh, both uh, symptomatic infections where they uh, have uh, features including fever, cough, and all of the things you'll hear about, or asymptomatic infections where they weren't even aware they were infected. We're going to be identifying these people by doing blood tests on them to measure for antibodies that their body has developed uh, to the uh, infection that causes COVID-19. And we're then going to look at what the characteristics are of these participants in this study so that we can understand why some people get uh, the infection and why some people get it more severely than other people. Uh, And hopefully this will give us ideas about how individuals could help protect themselves against getting infection uh, if uh, and before vaccines become widely available, or indeed if vaccines, um, you know, prove not to be quite as effective as we hope they're gonna be.
0: Um, we, we have talked at length about how this uh, pandemic, how this virus coronavirus has targeted others and, and not others. Uh, you know, we, we we see it less uh, harmful uh, amongst the younger population and, and those that are under 18, say, for example, yet obviously uh, taking out uh, uh, many over the age of 65, uh, 70 years of age and, and people with with underlying conditions of sort. Have you seen something like this? that we don't seem to understand who it is targeting, how it is affecting some and yet others not at all or asymptomatically?
5: I think you're right. We see some broad patterns, but within those patterns, there are a heck of a lot of exceptions to the rules. And that's what makes this virus, in my mind, and probably in the minds of a lot of folks, a little frightening. Because while we know that clearly older people, uh, people with uh, major illnesses are more vulnerable Uh, to severe infection if they should catch the virus. There are also clearly cases of younger and relatively healthy people also being severely affected by the virus. Uh, And so it's this degree of uncertainty which has led us to do the research we're undertaking now. Also, what we don't know is how long uh, you're left with any form of disability or uh, physical effects from the virus. Just anecdotally, people will report feeling sick and not feeling great for weeks after getting the infection. And so the research we're going to be undertaking, will look to see whether or not uh, the viral infection can have longer term side effects and longer term consequences on how your lungs work, for example.
0: Uh, as you mentioned, we've heard lots of information start to trickle out about uh, long haulers as they're characterized, people who've had the disease and yet are having a, a very difficult time uh, getting over it. They may be functional, but still aren't 100%. Uh, what is the percentage of patients, do we know, uh, that have those sorts of symptoms?
5: Yeah, that's a great question, and I don't think we really know the answer to it, Um It normally takes science uh, and scientific studies quite a while to generate this sort of information. Uh, We're trying to, just as with a vaccine, condense a lot of our scientific activities into a short period of time. Hopefully, uh, certainly from the study we're undertaking in several countries around the world, we'll have some information we can share towards the middle of 2021. Um, We would like to uh, have this even earlier, but, You know, the nature of studying thousands of people is that it it takes time. It's not an easy thing to do. Uh, But as soon as we have that information, uh, we'll certainly make it available. And in the meantime, other people around the world are working on similar sorts of research uh, to try and contribute as well.
0: I've read a story of late where uh, the people who do who donate blood could be helping to this cause that that is a a uh, a, a silo of research right there uh, if we just study some of the blood that comes in is there anything we can learn from blood donors
5: yes uh, there is um, there was a large study done in the United States I believe where they looked at the rate of uh, I guess, infection with the virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19 uh, amongst uh, people uh, from routine blood specimens. And I guess what we learned from studies like that is that there are many people in the community who have probably had the infection, uh, but are, have been asymptomatic. They didn't even know they had it. And this is one of the reasons the virus uh, has been so rampant uh, and so difficult to control. Is that you could be walking around, shedding the virus. In you know, every time you you cough or sneeze, uh, the virus is present and could infect somebody who's vulnerable. But you could be, for reasons we don't know, uh, asymptomatic and not have any physical complaints at all. Uh, and so that's one lesson that these sorts of studies from blood tests, uh, routine blood tests and blood donors uh, has yielded. Of course, there's another line of research looking at whether taking components of the blood from people who've actually had infection, uh, whether or not these blood components could help uh, protect or treat people uh, who've also got the infection but got it more severely. At the moment, I think the research uh, is still under development, I would say, for this sort of application of blood donation. Uh, And uh, time and research is going to tell whether this is a helpful treatment for people who've got uh, significant or nasty COVID-19 infection.
0: Uh, that sort of answered my next question here, uh, doctor, in the sense that, you know, for example, today, 1676 new cases in Ontario and the vast majority of those people will recover and they will be fine. It's just certain segments of the population, for some reason, that this seems to hit a lot harder. So for the vast majority of these people that do recover, what can we learn from them?
5: I think there's a, a really important point in what you said, first of all. Um, it's really tempting um, for younger folks, people who are perhaps less vulnerable to getting a severe infection, to think that this is no more than a common cold or the flu, perhaps. But what we're seeing in the hospitals in Hamilton, around Ontario and throughout Canada, is that a proportion, albeit you know a small proportion, of people who get the infection will be severely affected. And these are people who are having to come to hospital and some of them, hundreds of them, are needing a ventilator to help them breathe and help them survive. These are people who 12, 24 months ago we would not have seen. And so if our hospitals already, say 12 months ago, were running at pretty close to 100% capacity, when you add these really unwell people on top of it, uh, our hospital systems become overwhelmed and are not able to cope and as a consequence of that uh, you know people who would say need a bypass operation or heart surgery they're getting uh, having to get postponed because there's no intensive care bed available mm. for them because they're being occupied by folks with severe COVID infection and again all of us physicians know of people and individuals who've had their surgeries postponed and have had bad things happen as a consequence of that
0: yeah but no, I, really I didn't. I, I certainly, I certainly didn't mean to suggest, doctor, that you know, will, the most of the people that get it are fine and everything's okay. I, I've explained this to my kids several times. It's not about uh, them or I or us getting it and getting over it and being fine. The issue is, is some of the people end up in hospital and that clogs up the healthcare system for people having uh, procedural situations or operations. Whether it's a heart or even a heart attack or a car accident, it clogs, Even though the majority of the people do well. And I, and I don't want to send this message. The, the point is is the others that don't very much clog up the healthcare system and that's the issue, not necessarily uh, you know people getting it and then recovering. But that being said, what is there anything we can learn from whether it's blood or what have you that we can learn from those people who have already had it and have moved on?
5: I think there certainly is a lot we can learn. Uh, for example, what we don't know is if there are long-term health consequences. Um, what we hope to be able to investigate is if you've had COVID-19, is there a degree of long-term lung damage? Mm. It just won't get better over time. Another example is we know uh, when someone's having the COVID-19, they're at increased risk of blood clots, and these can be life-threatening or fatal. What we don't know is whether this risk of uh, blood clotting actually continues for months or even years after you've had the infection, uh, just because this is a really new virus. So those are the sorts of questions that we're going to be trying to address when we do our research over the next few years.
0: This is, we're going to be studying this for an awfully long time, aren't we?
5: I would say so. Um, I don't think anyone could have foreseen how severe and long-lasting this health problem is going to be, uh, but I think it is going to be with us for a long time.
0: Now you talked about uh, hi- uh, people with a history of blood clots. Uh, this certainly seems to be a respiratory type illness, lung type illness. Is 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 that the relation with the blood clots?
5: They can be related. So some folks uh, have clearly got blood clots, actually that blocks off the blood flow to the lungs, and that's part of the reason they get very unwell. Other folks get disease of the lung itself and not just the blood vessels and you know we've uh, all seen sort of pictures of autopsy specimens from unfortunate folks who've died from COVID lung disease and really the lung for one of a better sort of description looks like a block of cheese instead of being like a sponge it becomes solid Uh, and this is uh, you know a terrible condition and why in some people it's fatal so I guess the lung conditions uh, from severe COVID could be because of either blood clots affecting the lungs or because of the virus itself and its consequences for the lungs themselves. And so there are uh, different ways in which the lungs can be affected in COVID.
0: Obviously, uh, more fatal in, in, in older generations. Is that just to be assumed because, like with any other illness, they would be more susceptible to it? Or do you think it's something specific about this coronavirus?
5: Yeah, that's another great question, because there are viruses which actually, you know, tend to affect uh, younger people more severely than older people. Uh, so exactly why older people seem to get more severe life-threatening infections with this coronavirus, uh, I don't think we know the answer entirely. Uh, and so that's got to be another question that we try and look into uh, when it comes to research.
0: Uh, we've, we're obviously hearing more and more information about this vaccination. Uh, obviously those that are in long-term care and frontline workers are going to be the first to get this. And then once it moves into the general population, we're hearing that, that obviously those that are on the front lines and then through age and such. Uh, in order to uh, to get it uh, all the way through the population. This vaccine has not been tested in those under the age of 18, the recommended kids not get this, or uh, women who are pregnant. Um, what about that in kids? Uh, will it ever be tested on kids? Does it need to be tested on kids simply because it doesn't appear that, that they seem to be uh, too vulnerable to it?
5: Uh, yes, I believe there are plans, uh, if not uh, already started, uh, for the vaccine to be trialled in kids. And I do think it's an important question uh, because kids, while most of them will not get severe infection, there is a very small percentage who get what's called an inflammatory syndrome, where they get uh, inflammation affecting multiple blood vessels in their body, and who have had, you know, very severe illnesses reported. Uh, related to COVID. So there is a risk, albeit a small one, of very severe infection in really young and otherwise healthy uh, children. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that uh, kids can transmit infections. And the last thing I think anyone would want is for a kid to, you know, really bring home the virus to Mm. granddad or or to grandmom uh, and really be the cause of them being very unwell or, or even dying from COVID. So if we can prevent them actually getting infections, we might be able to stop them transmitting it uh, to older and more vulnerable loved ones.
0: Dr. Daryl Leong has been with us, Director of the Cardio-Oncology Program at McMaster University and Hamilton Health Sciences, working on uh, COVID-19 and the long-term effects of it. And uh, obviously, there'll be studies going on for a long period of time to to reveal more about this uh, new coronavirus. Uh, Daryl, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much for having me. You too you keep safe too. The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to three on nine hundred CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson and thanks for listening.